Welcome to Hope. Welcome to the first week of our Advent Christmas series, God With Us. Uh, how many of you saw that film, Amazing Grace? Um, it came out in the early 2000s, so it's been around a while. And of course, it told the story of William Wilberforce's role in abolishing the slave trade in the UK. And today, I'd like to tell you that story. I'd like to tell you the story of William Wilberforce uh, at the beginning of our Advent series because the essential Christian message is that at the first Christmas, the first Noel, when Mary and Joseph were curled up in a stable with their baby because there was no room for them at the inn, uh, Jesus Christ... God himself, God in the flesh, was drawing near. And when God draws near to humanity, things change. People change. But when God draws near, people change, and people change things. But when God draws near, people change, and people change the world around them. Whether that's an issue in their personal life or or a detour in the family history that they want to correct, or whether it's something in our world that desperately needs reformation. The, the life <clears throat> of William Wilberforce is a vivid, gripping picture of what can happen when God draws near. So I'd like to tell you the story, and then we'll go to the scriptures from the book of Jeremiah chapter 29. Uh, the season of Advent, and Advent are the weeks leading up to the Advent or the appearing of Jesus in human history. The weeks of Advent cover five themes. They cover themes of hope, peace, joy, love, and Christ, or Jesus. And today, I want to look at the power of hope that is always present inside an encounter with God. And then next Sunday, by the way, you don't want to miss our service because next Sunday I'm going to tag team with Carol Montgomery. Carol is a brilliant, amazing marriage and family therapist, and we're going to talk together about peace. And we're going to talk about what peace and mental health looks like, not only at the holidays, but just at this moment in human history. So we have an incredible series um, lined up for these weeks, but I want to talk about the hope that is resident in an encounter with Jesus, because that's the essential message of the Christian religion, and it's embedded in this moment at Christmas. So are you familiar with William Wilberforce? Three? Okay. So, so several of you are already familiar with him, and so you already love him, so this will be easy. And I hope you don't mind a little story time in church. We'll get to the scriptures in a little while, but um, if, you, if you know anything about his story, you already love him. Um, and I think you'll appreciate the backstory. And, and as I talk about his story, think about your story. And as I highlight the spirit that was inside this, this very small man, um, William Wilberforce was never more than five foot two. He topped out at five foot two, never weighed more than 135 pounds. But he was a lion. And as I talk about this lion spirit inside this small guy, um, Think about where you in your life need that same spirit and where that needs to work in your story as well. So William Wilberforce was born in 1759 in Hull, England. 
Fully grown, 5'2", 135 pounds, but he had a booming voice. So little guy, powerful voice, and he was an incredible singer, which was a very incredible gift to have in that day. He was a great orator. He was a great singer. And his family was quite wealthy. So he was born as a child into all of the privilege that's associated with great wealth. However, his father died when he was only nine. And then when Wilberforce was nine, his mother also became very sick. And so he was shuttled off to live with an aunt and an uncle who, who were part of this crazy religious sect known as the Methodists. <laughs> and these Methodists were a group of Anglicans, these British Christians that were passionate about their faith. They were very serious about what they believed. In fact, they were called enthusiasts. And that's what the religious people called them. And Wilberforce adopted some of that same seriousness and zeal. He was exposed to this through his aunt and uncle who were Methodist enthusiasts, but he was also exposed to that by some of the shining stars of theology of that day. You may have heard the names George Whitfield or John Wesley. They were revivalists in England that actually brought revival and helped lead the Great Awakening in America. And they were in the same circle with John Newton. John Newton was the ex-slave ship captain turned abolitionist guy who wrote the song Amazing Grace. And from the time that Wilberforce was 11 to 13 years of age, John Newton was his mentor. So John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, was one of the primary mentors of Wilberforce. And Wilberforce was this kind, sensitive, uh, gentle, young child who was having a genuine and dramatic spiritual awakening. His encounter with these crazy Methodists was, was awakening something on the inside of him um, uh, until his mother found out what was happening. And his mother didn't like the idea of him being gripped in the clutches of these enthusiasts. See, in, in those days, religion was viewed by the upper classes kind of as a tool to keep the poorer classes in line. So if you do religion right, people can be a little bit fearful all the time, but you give them a little bit of hope that maybe they can go to heaven when they die. So it, it was kind of a, a class situation, and, and, and the, the, the higher classes didn't really like all of this religious fervor. In fact, there's a funny tombstone in a, a, a cemetery in London that describes this preacher. He wanted everyone to know what side he was on. His tombstone literally reads... He faithfully preached the gospel for 40 years without enthusiasm. <laughs> How would you like to be in that church? So, so these enthusiasts were, were, were frowned upon, and they were worried that he was getting so enthusiastic. And so his mother recalled him from his aunt and uncle, and then intentionally, um, she and his grandfather started deprogramming him from all of this religious influence. At 17, he went off to Cambridge. At Cambridge, he was um, very popular, made tons of friends, very admired, very witty, very eloquent, and as I said, beautiful singer. And in those days, singing was an incredible gift because if you think about it, they, they didn't have sound systems. There were no jukeboxes. There, were, there, were, there was no way to pump music into a setting. And so when people got together, they often ended up singing. 
And if you could sing, that was a gift. He was a great singer. He was popular. He made friends easily. Um, the, the Prince of Wales said he would travel anywhere to hear Wilberforce sing. And one of the friendships that he made was with a young man named William Pitt the Younger. And Pitt was the son of a prominent figure in British Parliament. And Pitt the Younger would take Wilberforce with Pitt's dad to listen to the debates in Parliament. And this was around 1776. And so the debates that they listened to in Parliament were about the U.S. colonies and the Revolutionary War that was happening. So Wilberforce and Pitt sat listening to these debates, and they were absolutely riveted. They were gripped by what they saw. They got hooked, and, and they decided to go into politics. Um, in those days, to do well in politics, you had to speak well and debate well, and Wilberforce was exceptional at both. And so at 20 years of age, he decided to run for parliament. And what that meant back then was you found somebody to buy your seat. So they, they, they fearlessly bribed electorates, which is how you did it back then. And with two weeks left in his 20th year, he was elected to government. And at the same time, his buddy Pitt was elected. And so these two young guys made it into parliament at 20 years of age, and they rose quickly. Um, in those days... Um, you, 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 you excelled based on your ability to debate. And so Pitt was the leader and Wilberforce was the voice. Pitt was the politician. Wilberforce was the debater. They, 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 were, they were rising stars. Everybody loved them. At 24 years of age, Pitt was elected as the prime minister of Great Britain. Unprecedented. 24 years old. And at the same election, Wilberforce maneuvered his way into a very esteemed seat from um, uh, Yorkshire, I think. Um, and I don't even know where that town is, but yeah, Yorkshire. And, and so both of them were at um, high levels of government. And in their early 20s, they're literally leading the country and they were loving it. There was an author who observed Wilberforce's eloquence in the House of Commons, and he said that when I watched him, at first it appeared that a shrimp jumped up on the table, but the more he talked, the shrimp grew and grew until he became a whale. So powerful, so influential. And about that time, Wilberforce took a vacation to the French Riviera, like you do, and he took a friend with him named Isaac Milner. Isaac Milner was a fascinating character. He was kind of known as the super genius in the UK. Isaac Milner was six foot, eight inches tall, and he weighed 300 pounds. He was a brilliant mathematician. In fact, the Royal Society elected him to their order when he was an undergrad. And that doesn't really mean anything to us, but that was the upper crust of academia. He held the chair of mathematics at Cambridge, same chair that Isaac Newton and Stephen Hawking held. And he did it as a kid. And he was hilarious, um, famously so. And so Isaac Milner decided to go to the French Riviera with Pitt or um, Wilberforce, and it had to be hysterical to see a six foot eight guy, 300 pounds, sitting in a carriage next to a five foot two guy, 135 pounds. 
But both of them had these big booming voices, and the little guy never stopped singing. And it was a 1,200-mile journey to the French Riviera. And so they engaged in an incredible, days-long, extraordinary conversation about religion. And it turned out that Milner was a Methodist. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> the smartest man in England was a devout Christian. And that blew Wilberforce's mind. How could it be that the smartest man in the country actually believes all of this stuff? And, and so they were off to the races. They were talking, debating, and by the end of the trip, Wilberforce's faith had been rekindled. That could not have happened at a more inopportune time. Wilberforce was the toast of London. He was the most eligible bachelor in town. In fact, a wealthy socialite of that day said of him that he was the wittiest man in all of England. And now he was a committed Christian, an enthusiast, no less, a Methodist. And most people at that time thought that politics and religion were such polar opposites that there was no way they could merge. So Wilberforce believed, since this is happening in me and I can't deny it, I'm going to have to get out of politics. And I'm going to have to go the route of religion. Pitt pleaded with him not to do that. He begged him, don't quit your calling to government. In fact, it finally took John Newton coming on the scene. And John Newton said to him, what, what, are, you, what are you thinking you can do way more good in Parliament than if you stepped into one of those stodgy old pulpits of the Church of England. And he decided to stick it out. And thank God he did. It was about that time that the abolitionists started to realize that something was going on with Wilberforce. They realized that there was this revival happening on the inside of him. So they started lobbying him. They set up all of these chance meetings they would just show up at a place where they knew he would be and, hey, Wilberforce, give us a song. And then they would flatter him and encourage him and, and befriend him. And then they started educating him about the slave trade. And when we think of the 1700s in England, most of us, we tend to think of it through what we've seen in the movie. So we think of powdered wigs. We think of kind of stodgy manners and... Um, no, no offense, Rich, but you know, you think of uptight people drinking tea or things like that. That's kind of what you think of when you picture England of this era. But in fact, London at this time was very body, vulgar. This was a pagan cultural moment in England. There was a huge gap between rich and poor. Being poor basically meant destitute. And the rich could not care less. And the church <clears throat> was impotent to speak against these things. If you had gone to church in England in this time, you would have heard more about enlightenment theory. That would be humanism and man-centered philosophies than you would hear about the story of God. And so the church, the church also believed that, that God's blessing was on the rich. So Christians were not generous. Christians hoarded their wealth just like anyone else did. And so the church was not speaking up against issues of, of culture or need or injustice. Um, in fact, to illustrate this, um, this just was shocking to me to learn this, but London in the 1770s, 
was so, was so decadent in these ways that 25% of all of the women living in London in the 1770s were prostitutes, which speaks far beyond those women. It speaks to the culture. It speaks to the state. The average age, 16. A quarter of the women were prostitutes. The average age of those women was 16 years old. Um, it was a rough place to live. And God was not a major factor. The leading social figure of the day, kind of the bachelor that everybody was in love with, was the Prince of Wales. So some things never change. He was famous for two things, his gambling debts. In fact, Parliament had to pass measures to cover his debts from gambling. And he had more than 7,000 sleepovers, house guests of young women. And he would do a peculiar thing he would always cut a lock of their hair, put it in an envelope, write their name on the envelope, and file it. And then he would brag to people about his filing system. Um, one, of the most, <laughs> one of the most popular forms of entertaining back then was, was called bull baiting. You ever heard of bull baiting? It was very bizarre. They would tie a bull up to a stake with like 30 feet of chain, and then somebody would come up and they would blow pepper in its face just to enrage the bull. Then they would all run back and they would send dogs to attack the bull and then they would sit back to see what would happen. And these dogs would latch onto the muzzle of the bull until the bull would rear up and fling the dogs up in the air. And they would sit back to see how high the, bulls would, the dogs would fly. It, it, was, it was blood sport and they loved it. That they actually bred dogs for this purpose called bulldogs. That was the origin of bulldogs. Tiny bodies, big head to lock on. So that's the kind of culture that we're talking about. That was what was happening in the world at the time that Wilberforce encountered Jesus Christ. And trying to get those people to care about slavery was not happening. But Wilberforce decided to try. He felt like he had come into this moment for a purpose. This was his Esther Moment, And he, he wrote in his journal that God Almighty had set before him two objectives, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Manners does not mean etiquette, it meant culture. So he came to believe that God Almighty has put me here at this moment for the abolition of the slave trade and the reformation of culture. And he and his buddies threw themselves into these reforms. And they were ingenious. They, they were so creative. Everybody loved them. And they made incredible progress in areas regarding prostitution, um, animal cruelty, um, concern for the poor, um, alcoholism. This was the first time somebody in government used religious convictions to fuel them toward making social change. That this was revolutionary. In fact, we're living in the wake of this still. Some of our concerns today was social justice. And how does the gospel inform how we care about issues in our world came from this movement in history. It was amazing. We're, we're still living in the effects of it. But the slave trade, though, that was another story. The, the British slave trade was very subtly brutal because the average person never saw it. 
Um, they never really knew what was happening because it was happening in the British West Indies or the Americas. It wasn't really happening at home. And, and the slave trade, too, was making the, the, the nation unbelievably rich. There, were, there was so much wealth pouring into the country from what the plantations produced with um, uh, growing sugar, fruit, cocoa, um, spices. And so Wilberforce realized what was happening, and he threw himself into fighting these things. He and his friend Pitt... These young dreamers made a gigantic run at this. They thought it would be overthrown pretty quickly. In fact, they thought they could just come in and convince everybody. And so they, they made their plan. They did their campaign. They went for it, and it failed. But they just regrouped. They thought, okay, that's fine. We'll, we'll try again. We'll work harder. So they went at it again the second year, and it failed. And, and, and it failed over and over and over. And so years went by. And they actually became almost a laughing stock where people kind of would chuckle that these two enthusiasts, these two parliamentarian Methodists are going to roll out their ending slavery thing again. Um, that there were some years that they thought it would work, but then something fell apart at the end. In fact, there was one year they had the votes. They had a one cushion vote to abolish the slave trade. But three of their supporters in the house decided to go to the opening night of an opera instead of the vote. So they lost. It had to wait another year. Um, this, this went on year after year. And so finally, they lost heart in the political side, and they decided to go directly to the people. And they decided to try and raise public awareness about what was happening. And um, Wilberforce gave speeches. He wrote pamphlets, and he started talking about the horrifying Middle Passage. Do you remember hearing about the Middle Passage in school? The Middle Passage was one of the legs of the triangular slave trade route that was happening. So the slave trade of that day in Great Britain followed this, this three-legged journey where it went from the the, the merchants in England bringing copper and ammunition and things like that to Africa, where African people would sell their brothers and sisters. They would sell their own, their own people to them. And then the Middle Passage was the leg of the journey where these, these slaves that were being trafficked were transported to the plantations. And on the plantations, they would grow all of the, the stuff that produced wealth for the British Empire. And then from there, those resources would go back to the country. So that was the triangular trip. And the Middle Passage was the journey that these African slaves went on from Africa to the plantations. And it was brutal. I, I can't even begin to adequately describe what it was like. Um, human beings, moms, dads, children kidnapped from their families, crammed into these disease-ridden ships below decks, and at best, the decks were five feet tall, so you couldn't stand up straight, most of them, chained in pairs, um, 300 to 400 people, shoulder to shoulder, no ventilation, not even any buckets for human waste. Of the 10 to 12 million African slaves who made the Middle Passage, 25% died on the way. And nobody had heard of it. Nobody ever heard the details of it until Wilberforce. 
in that big booming voice and with his charisma and his gifts and his persuasion started talking about the unbearable heat in the Caribbean below deck. He talked about people stacked naked almost on top of each other, um, human waste everywhere, the suffocating smell, the disease, the raping and the killing for sport. There was a man named Thomas Clarkson who spent years doing deep research to try and expose what was happening, and he drew these pictures to scale of ships like the famous Brooks ship, which was proudly owned by this prominent family called Brooks in London at the time. And his drawings exposed what was actually happening there. Um, it, showed what, it showed decks covered in mucus and human waste and blood. Um, it described how people would get sick, how the rocking of the boat would rub the skin down to the bones. It, it was said you could smell a slave ship a mile away. And then schools of sharks would follow them because of the bodies that were constantly being tossed into the ocean. And that, that's how he talked about it. Those were Wilberforce's words and descriptions. And people were shocked. They had no idea. And so it slowly started to bring this pressure on both Parliament and the people who were involved in this, like the Brooks family. It brought pressure and some shame on the people who were involved. And <clears throat> Wilberforce was on a mission. He told everyone who would listen to him about the Middle Passage. And then he, he wrote his famous quotation where he said, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say that you did not know. And of course, the capitalist industrialists, they had their own slogan that they broke out at this time. Their slogan was, a vote to sink the slave trade is a vote to sink the British economy. And that's kind of how it always seems to happen. There's always somebody promoting wealth and that kind of welfare above justice and actual human need. So year after year, he would introduce this bill, and year after year, it would get voted down. 20 years went by. And he fought this year after year after year. And, and sometimes they were filibustered away. Sometimes... People got bought off. Um, after, in this whole time, they're savaging the apologists. Um, Wilberforce and Pitt, they were quite a duo. And they lost a lot along the way. They were ridiculed. They were attacked. They were beaten. In fact, Wilberforce um, forestalled getting married for years because he was convinced that this would bring about his death. Finally, after 20-ish years of all of this, in 1807, the first measure passed that made the slave trade illegal. Owning slaves was still okay. It didn't outlaw slavery, it just outlawed the trade. And the, the rationale was if we can at least start there, maybe it can humanize slavery a bit, which it did a bit, and maybe it can give us time to generate the votes to bring a full-on abolition. Um, he continued to work and lead the cause of abolition in the government until he retired in 1825 without winning the abolition. But he kept giving speeches. In his retirement, he kept advocating. He kept lobbying. He kept speaking. And as he lay dying in 1833, on his deathbed, someone brought him a message of measures that were passed in the House that would ensure the full abolishment of the slave trade. 
and he died three days later. It, it, it was his mission, his mission. In fact, on a, a side note, during those 20 years of discouragement, when he was failing and failing and failing, John Wesley died. And on John Wesley's deathbed, he sent a message to Wilberforce, don't quit. Don't get discouraged. Don't back off. Finish your mission. And none of that happened until Jesus Christ drew near. The name of God, and Nick said this wonderfully in worship, the name of Jesus that we recognize at this time of year is Emmanuel, God with us. When God draws near, people change. If there's anybody in your life and you feel like that person will never change, when God draws near, people change. And when people change, they begin to change things around them. When God drew near, this charming, dashing, up-and-coming political rock star was ruined. And he found a cause beyond himself and a hope to live for that would bring hope to countless people. Thank God he didn't quit. When Jesus draws near, hope is born. And if we continue walking with Jesus, we constantly receive the courage that's necessary to continue walking until that hope becomes a reality. Are you in Jeremiah 29? I mentioned that an hour ago. <laughs> Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. When Jesus draws near, hope draws near with him. But, but sometimes, have you noticed, it takes a little while for the hope to materialize? It, have, it, would your story agree with Wilberforce's that sometimes it takes a while for the hope that God has promised to actually happen? See, everyone loves this verse. Jeremiah 29, 11 is probably one of the most bumper-stickered, tattooed quotes in the Bible. We love this verse. But for everyone who loves this verse, for everyone who's hanging their hope on the hope in this verse, we might want to back up one verse to Jeremiah 29, 10. Jeremiah 29, 10 says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Listen, that's your promise. That, that was written for Israel at a specific moment in history, but all of Scripture confirms that that is God's heart for you. The plans that God has for you are good. The future that he has for you is filled with hope. It's good. But it kind of sounds like a John Wesley moment. Hang in there. Persevere. Build a great life while you're waiting because it might take a while to capture the prize. And if you're in that place of holding on to hope and waiting for hope and wanting your hopes to materialize, there's another verse that you can add to your, your life. It's Romans 5.5. 5. Romans 5.5 5 says that hope does not disappoint 
because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So while you're waiting on your hopes, God's desire is that you would morph into a human funnel and you would experience an ongoing uh, reception of the love of God that pours into you and through you into the people around you. You know, before our church merge, our, our two churches were called Baseline and Grace. Grace is a much easier name than hope. Grace is an easier name to wear than hope because grace is a disposition. Grace is a, an idea of living in the joy, the peace, the love, the acceptance, the delight of God. Hope is a battle. Hope is a war. Uh, grace is a reality to be received. Hope is a, is a force to be contended for. It's a promise to be waited on and reached for and then exported to the world around them. In fact, to, to quote, to paraphrase Eugene Peterson, it's a long obedience in the same direction. And it takes a particular kind of person to persevere in hope. It, it, it takes a Wilberforce. It takes, uh, it takes someone who, who refuses to quit. In your story and in the story of our generation, you're the Wilberforce. I know when you tell a dramatic story like this, it can make our, our issues seem pretty petty. Uh, you need the spirit of a William Wilberforce to change your life or to correct the direction of your family tree. And there are still causes in our world today that need to be addressed. And, and I don't ever want to think that a little church like ours might not have a world changer sitting here. We can all change our personal worlds, but there might be somebody sitting here that could actually change our world. Cambodia is changing because Don and Bridget Brewster decided to sell their home in the North Air, Northern California area, move to Cambodia, and start worshiping and serving people. So as we move into the season of Advent, Advent is not a season of striving. It's a season of sitting, posturing, preparing, and receiving. But don't be surprised if when God draws near, hope is awakened in your heart. But it's not just for you. It's for somebody around you. It's for somebody who needs to be set free. Um, you haven't peaked yet. John Wesley commissioned and encouraged an abolitionist on his deathbed. What will we do on ours? I feel like if we're talking about William Wilberforce, if we're talking about John Newton, we have to sing Amazing Grace together. <laughs> Jessica and I were married on 5595, May 5th, 1995. And I, I know everybody thinks Cinco de Mayo when they hear 55, but... In, in biblical numerology, when people study the significance of numbers in the Bible, they often suggest that the number five is representative of grace. So we were married on grace, grace, 90, grace. And, and so because of that, one of the pastors that spoke at our wedding told the story of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, and told the story of, of his conversion. And he, he told how... Uh, as a drunken slave ship captain, John Newton got wasted, 
tipsy, fell over the side of the ship and was just floundering in the water, probably would have drowned. His crew was so repulsed by him, nobody wanted to throw him a rope or go in and get him, so they threw a harpoon at him. And they harpooned him through his leg and then drug him up the side of the ship by a harpoon. And he limped for the rest of his life after that. And yet he had such a powerful conversion after that experience that he began to thank God for his limp. And he said, every single day that I limp, it's a reminder of the amazing grace of God that did not let me drown, that pulled me up over the side. And he became an abolitionist, radically transformed his life. And listen, those days are not over. Our world is not done. I'm reading so many reports of how nobody believes in the American dream anymore. And that's fine. The American dream is not our hope or our goal. I'm reading so many reports, though, of young people have no hope for the future. You know, people don't believe that tomorrow will be better than today. Um, there is always hope and life and somebody to champion a cause and make a difference. And it starts when we pause and encounter and experience the amazing grace of God that brings hope near and changes us on the inside. 2024 does not have to look like 2023 for some of you. 2024 doesn't have to be a repeat of 2023. Things can change. Things can improve. And maybe this is your Esther moment. And you came into the kingdom for such a time as this, to be used by God to change the situation for someone around you. It's, it's, it's glamorous after the fact. It's not glamorous to live that life, but it is meaningful and powerful, and it is worth every second of it. So... Amazing Grace? Yeah, let's sing.